0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guest in the studio today is Brahima Sangafoa Koulibaly. He's a senior fellow in global economy and development at Brookings and is the new director of the Africa Growth Initiative. Before coming to Brookings, he was chief economist and head of the Emerging Market and Developing Economies Group at the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. He has published widely on various topics in macroeconomics, development, international finance, monetary economics, and trade. He joins me today to talk about taking the helm of the Africa Growth Initiative and to discuss the challenges and opportunities facing African nations. Stay tuned in this episode for Wessel's Economic Update, in which David Wessel comments on President Trump's budget plan. Also, Elaine Mark discusses the very delicate process of impeachment. Now on with the interview. Brahima, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you for having me. And welcome to Brookings. I know you've just recently started. Can you tell us about coming to Brookings and a little bit about your background?
1: So I come to Brookings from the Federal Reserve here in Washington, D.C., where, as you pointed out, I was the chief economist in charge of the emerging markets and developing economies. So that obviously included coverage of Africa, but also included the coverage of other regions like Asia, Latin America. So coming to Brookings allowed me now to focus a bit more the work on African issues.
0: All right. So let's talk about now the Africa Growth Initiative. It's a program here at Brookings. It's been around for a number of years. I've interviewed your predecessor, Amadou C., and now you're taking the helm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what the Africa Growth Initiative is all about?
1: Yeah. So the Africa Growth Initiative is the main program within the Brookings to analyze African economic issues and being able to bring those issues to the knowledge of African policymakers as well as U.S. policymakers and anybody else who has interest in African economic issues.
0: And when we talk about Africa in this context, I mean, I know it's a huge continent. There's over 50 countries, hundreds of languages. We think about Africa, this as Africa, but it's really a huge, diverse place. But for the Africa Growth Initiative, your focus is mostly on sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, kind of that central... Band of African nations. Can you talk about why, why the focus would be on that area?
1: All right. So the focus is on the Sub-Saharan African region because there's other parts of the program within Brookings that covers like the Middle East and uh, Northern Africa, but that is not to say that we don't pay attention to what goes on in those Northern African countries. We do and cover them as appropriate. So, Abraham,
0: in these first few months of the Trump administration, what have you heard or not heard in terms of changes? or continuities in U.S. policy toward Africa and African nations?
1: So in the first 100 days or 120 days or so, we have not heard much that would give us uh, clear clarity in terms of what is going to change or not change when it comes to U.S. policies toward Africa. So beginning with what we know, we know that President Trump did reach out to some head of states in Africa, uh, President Zuma, of south africa president kenyatta of kenya and president buhari in nigeria and the discussions there focus on security around the region but they also discuss cooperation trade and investment so that said it is not uncommon for administrations to come in without any clear policy strategy for africa in fact the previous three administrations did not come in with clear strategies for africa but turned out to be champions of Africa-U.S. relationships and have put in place uh, important programs that have been quite successful and have enjoyed bipartisan support that we hope the current administration, when they have their key Africa personnel in place, will uh, preserve and even look to strengthen those programs.
0: Okay. Well, that's a very good way to look at it. So another challenge that we've seen emerging in developed countries in Europe and the United States is growing discontent with globalization and even some political changes. And you've said that these changes, this growing discontent with globalization presents challenges for African economies. What are those challenges?
1: Well, I think what I meant there was that the discontent and as well as also changing political environments is sort of putting pressure on the governments to revisit their commitment to development assistance. And African economies, many of them still depend a lot on development assistance with uh, those funds making up sometimes more than half of government expenditures. So they will be affected if those development assistance funds are curtailed. But in particular, it comes at a time when the external environment, more generally, does not look as favourable as it did in the past. We think global interest rates are going to rise going forward, so they might not be able to issue debt on the same favourable term that they did a few years ago. And commodity prices have fallen and their outlook does not look particularly bright. So, the economies are going to be deprived from viral export earnings that could allow them to finance development projects. So, broadly speaking, I think it's looking to be a challenging external environment. And it reminds us urgently that these economies should focus a bit more on mobilizing domestic resources, which is an important part of our work program here at uh, the Africa Growth Initiative.
0: Well, I think I'll use your mentioning of the commodity prices falling as a segue to this next question, because I think it's really relevant. We've heard over the past decade, immense economic growth across the whole region of sub-Saharan Africa. There's been this Africa rising narrative, but a lot of it, I think, has been fueled by growth in commodity prices. So with commodity shocks and other factors, Africa's growth seems to be faltering. Do you think that the narrative of Africa rising is still accurate, or should we rethink that narrative?
1: Well, I think the answer to that question begs the other question as to what was driving the growth of the past decade or two. And uh, I think there's a misconception that it was all about commodity prices. But it's the commodity prices provided further impetus to growth. But it wasn't the whole story. think over the past uh, two decades or so, economic management, has been improving drastically across Africa, and governance also has been strengthened considerably. Uh, They still have a long way to go, but there have been uh, gains along those dimensions that has helped to support growth. Uh, Just to give you an example, between 2000 and 2004, African economies were growing at about 5%, a bit over 5%, but the commodity price increase did not kick in until around 2004. So even before the commodity price rise, there was already a strong growth reflecting some of the factors that I mentioned. Now, it is true that the commodity price shock was large in 2014, and it has caused growth to fall to as low as 1.5% last year. But going forward, we expect the economies to begin recovering and adjusting a bit to this large shock. But then if you look at that numbers being a bit influenced by Key countries that make up a large share of Africa's GDP. South Africa and then Nigeria, we're seeing growth contracted last year. And then Angola, also highly dependent on oil, uh, seeing almost no growth last year. So combined, those countries make up more than half of Africa's aggregate GDP. But when you look at the country-specific level or take sort of the average, the growth rates are still like around uh, 3 3.5% last year. And we're looking for it to actually rise going forward further. Among the 10 fastest growing economies around the world, half of them are on the continent. They're growing at 6 7% at a time when the world growth itself is around 3.5%. And
0: 3.5% is faster than U.S. economic growth has been over the past few <laughs> yeah, right. two years. Another factor that we've seen, and I don't know how much to make of it, I know some Brookings scholars have done some research on this, is China's increased investment and in presence in Africa. Can you talk about what shape that attention to Africa has taken? Is it really that significant?
1: Well, it is true that the presence of China on the continent has been increasing. And China's relation with not just Africa, but other parts of the world has been increasing. And a few years ago, China displaced many countries across Latin America or Asia to become the number one trading partner ahead of the U.S., for example. And Africa was uh, no exception. So, currently, what we're also seeing is a pickup in Chinese investment on the continent. And the projections are that there's some $60 billion or so that have been earmarked for growth between last year and, say, 2018.
0: Do you think that's a lost opportunity for the United States? I mean, does that crowd out potential for U.S. investment in African nations, China's presence, or is it not going to crowd out U.S. investment?
1: I think across Africa, there's a lot of opportunities to go around for everybody. If you take one area where China has been quite active, which has been infrastructure, for example, it is estimated that Africa needs about $100 billion in infrastructure investment per year. And currently the gap, meaning the amount of infrastructure need that is not funded, is around $50 billion. So clearly there is room for even the U.S. to play some role with China's presence. There's still enough of our needs for the US to play an important role. But I think the most important factor that would shape US interests in Africa will be US's own policies toward Africa. The needs of the continents are changing, they're evolving, and the policies also need to be scaled up and adapted to those changing environments.
0: And now, Wessel's Economic Update, in which David Wessel talks about President Trump's budget plan.
2: I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. I confess, I'm a budget nerd. I actually look forward to the annual publication of the president's budget and all the tables of numbers that come with it. The budget is one place a president has to put a price tag on his promises and add up the numbers. And the budget is a manifestation of the president's priorities, a tangible and comprehensive statement of his worldview, a vehicle for the president to educate the American people on the choices and economic realities we face. So now we have President Trump's first budget, or as he calls it, his blueprint to make America great again. What did we learn? Well, as for the numbers adding up, not so much. The Trump budget is like a pro forma from an overly optimistic, slightly sketchy real estate developer pitching to unsophisticated investors. I've found gimmicks in every president's budget over the last few decades, but I can't recall one where the gimmicks were as large as in this one. The president essentially assumes his tax cuts, details of which still haven't been revealed, will pay for themselves with faster economic growth, which will bring in more tax revenue. Okay, that's dubious, but you can assume that. But then he double counts that growth dividend and says there'll be $2 trillion in revenues and savings left over to spend on other things. Not likely. What about his worldview, the priorities? Well, we don't yet know much about his tax plan, although we know it's a big tax cut that disproportionately benefits the well-off. The spending priorities, though, are revealed in the budget. The president wants to increase spending on defense and veterans and law enforcement. He'd leave Social Security, retirement, and Medicare untouched, even though they are the prime drivers of future debt and deficits. But the unrelenting laws of arithmetic then lead him to take the budget knife to pretty much everything else in the budget. Federal subsidies for Amtrak's busy Northeast Corridor cut by 28 percent. Make student loan programs less generous. Reshape a number of benefit programs largely aimed at the poor and the near poor. Food stamps, Medicaid, Social Security disability. In some respects, this is a Republican conservative agenda. Shrink the federal government to its original purposes. Push people on government benefits to work. Let states and localities tax themselves if they want more generosity. Promote economic growth as a solve for all that pains America. And that last point, I think, is where their budget runs aground. It targets almost every piece of the federal budget that is an investment in future growth. A 22% cut in the National Institutes of Health. An 11% cut in the National Science Foundation. A 17% cut for the Department of Energy's Office of Science. A 44% cut in the EPA Science and Technologies Program. The elimination of the Energy Innovation Agency called ARPA-E. An 8% cut in the Education Department's Institute of Education Scientists, A 32% cut in spending on training and employment. Well, you get the idea. Now, Congress won't make many of these cuts, but it'll make some. But I think the president has missed an opportunity here. He has missed an opportunity to devote the federal budget to those things that really will pay off for future generations and to teach Americans that we're a rich country, but we have to make some choices. And that means doing something to programs like Social Security and Medicare so we have more flexibility to invest in things like scientific research, education, and programs that help poor kids do better
0: when they grow up. And now back to the interview with Brahima Akulibaly. If you could pick one economic story that's happening in Africa today that you think is really exciting, what would that story be?
1: To me, the most important story has to be the information and communication technology. The event of that technology is opening up possibilities that are allowing Africans or African countries to meet some of the challenges toward the economic development objectives without having to go through the traditional uh, way of doing uh, of, of approaching economic development. One clear example is the mobile penetration rate. In Africa, it's one of the highest on the continent. And it's moved to now become more a platform to accelerate inclusive growth. It's being now used as a way to mobilize domestic resources, Just last month, Kenya was able to leverage that platform to issue a retail bond that allowed even small farmers with $30 or so to subscribe to it. And that allowed the government to mobilize really sustainable sources of funding for the infrastructure and allow all farmers to be able to save and earn 10% on their savings. And those were funds that in the past would not have been attainable. So that's a clear example of the possibilities that technology is opening up. And I have to note that this is the first time we're seeing this in the world. So what that also suggests is you have Africans now who are more willing to go into uncharted territory as opposed to just adapting technologies made elsewhere. So kind of along the same
0: lines, but what do you think is the most important political story
1: in Africa today? I would think the most important political story has to be the temptation of a head of states to seek third terms. Since the early 90s, Africa has undergone some democratic changes that have brought about multi-party systems. And since then, the democratic process has continued to be improved and strengthened. So the wave of recent attempts in some cases to seek three terms or to modify constitution to allow head of state to do three terms, I think should be discouraged. And they should result in some peaceful turnover uh, of power to the next generation. And I think that peaceful turnover of power to the next generation is a central tenet of the democratic process that should be preserved.
0: And keeping with the same theme, what is the most important security story in Africa today?
1: The most important security story has to be the presence of some terrorist activities on the continent, some parts of the continent. There's northern Mali, and there's also Al Shabaab in Kenya and East Africa, and then Boko Haram in uh, northern Nigeria, as well as also some piracy along the coast of Somalia and then uh, the Gulf of Guinea. But it's sort of confined to those areas, and it's not like a, yet at least a widespread problem, and it's being forcefully addressed. And I think the efforts to address it and restore peace in those areas is quite critical.
0: Another issue that we're seeing emerge is growing famine crisis in a few African nations. What can the U.S. and the international community do to respond to this growing crisis?
1: All right, so the famine crisis in those areas of Africa is quite a tragedy. In the 21st century, I think we shouldn't be having these sort of tragedies. But the first things in that kind of situation, I would say, would be to basically coordinate with the local authorities to kind of assess the situation fully and then assess also the capabilities and identify where we have gaps and where the international community and the U.S. and other partners can help. My understanding is that an assessment has been made and the needs have been put at around $4.5 billion by the United Nations. But currently, the funds that have been mobilized fall well short of the needed funds to address the situation. And the intervention can also come in the form of just coordinating efforts globally. It doesn't have to be monetary, but even uh, large corporations involving agribusiness, for example, can choose to donate food, and then the role of some other agencies could just be to lead that effort, coordinate it, and facilitate the delivery.
0: Let's go back to the idea of positive developments in Africa. And Mm -hmm. and as we wrap up here, thinking about the Africa Growth Initiative, your research agenda, Mm -hmm. what are some of the opportunities that you and your colleagues will be looking at and studying in the months to come? And and what do you see in terms of opportunities for Africa in the near future?
1: Right. So at the Africa Growth Initiative, we have a pretty hefty agenda that is going to be looking at the uh, most important uh, development issues in Africa. The first one is one that I touched on earlier, has to do with the domestic resource mobilization. The Africa Growth Initiative, we think that is really critical and that's key because traditionally domestic resources have been the most reliable and sustainable forms of financing. When you look at domestic resources by way of saving rates, for example, in Africa, they're really low. Average saving rates are about like 15% of GDP. But investment needs should be around 25 to 30 percent of GDP to be able to bring about significant transformational changes in Africa. So then, how do you mobilize or find? Where do you find 10 to 15 percentage point of GDP? It has to be that you mobilize more your domestic resources to boost up further your saving rates, and then supplement that with some other forms of external financing. So for us, that is quite critical and we have difficulty seeing how they can overcome this challenge unless domestic resources are fully mobilized. I am convinced that the African economies do have much of what they need for economic development. They just need to be more effort, creative effort, and political will to mobilize them. So that's one agenda. The second one is, has to do with the inclusiveness of growth. Even during the period where we had the African narrative that prevailed We haven't seen as much of improvements in living conditions. Despite the high growth, for example, we're still seeing high inequality. And the number of people living in poverty has not decreased. So that's concerning because growth itself is not an end. It should be a means to an end. And that end has to be the improvement of the living conditions of the populations. So at the Africa Growth Initiative, we'll be looking at instances where growth is able to bring about changes in living conditions versus when growth is not able to, and then see if we can better inform the policies and the development agendas of those African economies.
0: Well, Brahima, that sounds terrific, and I want to thank you once again for sharing your time and your expertise today.
1: Okay, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: You can learn more about Brahima Kulabali, and the Africa Growth Initiative on our website, brookings.edu slash africagrowth. Following today, Elaine Kmark is a Senior Fellow and Founding Director of the Center for Effective Public Management. In another installment of our Unpacked video series, Elaine talks about the delicate process of impeachment and how it has been used historically.
3: I'm Elaine K. Mark. I'm a senior fellow here at the Brookings Institution. I run the Center for Effective Public Management, and I'm a political scientist by training who's also served in the government. Article two states that the president can be impeached for bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors. It is triggered by an investigation that begins in the House Judiciary Committee, And the House Judiciary Committee, as a result of its investigation, draws up what they call articles of impeachment. The articles of impeachment are then sent to the floor of the House of Representatives, which votes on them. If they vote impeachment, then the whole system moves to the United States Senate for a trial. The first impeachment was President Andrew Johnson in 1868. He was really not impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, or bribery, or treason. His impeachment was really the result of a serious disagreement with the Congress over reconstruction and all sorts of other uh, political issues attached to it. Um, Ever since then, it's been felt that you shouldn't impeach a president because you disagree with him or her on policy, because that, in fact, begins to then weaken the separation of powers. The next impeachment we had of a president was, of course, Richard Nixon. And there, the it was much clearer. The issue was not a policy issue. In fact, Richard Nixon did many things that Democrats agreed with. There, the issue was obstruction of justice. Finally, the third impeachment vote we've had was of Bill Clinton for uh, the affair he had with Monica Lewinsky. And they did try to say that he used obstruction of justice. So we've had three examples of presidential impeachment. It's a delicate delicate process because of the separation of powers. um, But it is the sort of ultimate way that we can hold a president or a member of the judiciary accountable. There are many issues in the Trump administration, all all of which could conceivably result in the creation of articles of impeachment. One of them, of course, is the whole emoluments clause, a little obscure piece of the Constitution that nobody even knew about until uh, Donald Trump became president. And that has to do with him continuing to be involved in his business. If it is shown that there's any personal involvement of the president in the Russian hacking into the Democratic National Committee, that could be grounds of impeachment. And if they're shown that the president has tried to obstruct justice in any way by, for instance, saying to the director of the FBI that he should maybe back off from his investigations into the Russian connections, that could be grounds for impeachment. So suddenly, a little bit over 100 days into this administration, There are a lot of things swirling around that could conceivably end up in the construction of articles of impeachment in the House. The president's own party has to get on board with an impeachment vote. And for that to happen, it means probably that the president's supporters in the electorate need to have lost faith in him or believe that he has done something worthy of being tossed out of office. And that's, that shows you that there is a political dimension to this, even though there are, are also legal grounds we should remember that impeachment is very difficult. It, it takes months, if not years. Uh, Democrats in the summer of 1972 were really jumping to the conclusion and saying, oh my goodness, Richard Nixon did this, he should be impeached, etc." It took from June of 1972 to August of 1974 before articles of impeachment were brought out of the judiciary committee and Richard Nixon resigned because there is a there is a legal aspect and a political aspect to it and they have to move in tandem when Richard Nixon resigned his approval ratings were 22 to 25% of the of the american public so it re, it requires a length of time for people to kind of understand the charges, understand the problems, and decide whether or not they think the problems are serious enough that a president they elected should be turned out of office. So that's why this takes a while to to play out
0: you can find all of the unpacked videos on our website brookings.edu Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyPodcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelagin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.